Wow, that is so awesome, the story, the testimony, Chris, that you shared. Man, thank you for uh, sharing with us today. It is so, so exciting. Here at Crossroads Church, we are, <laughs> encore, the, the, here at Crossroads Church, we are uh, excited not only to hear the stories or to share the stories, but to hear the stories of the way that Jesus is working in and through our lives as individuals, bringing about the life change uh, that all of us want and desire within a relationship with God. That one of the beautiful things when it comes to baptism is that baptism is really an outward expression of something that's going on inward inside of us. That it's this coming to Jesus as our Savior, and in doing that, what we're doing is saying that we're dying to ourselves. That's why we get pushed down into the water. And then when we get pulled up out of the water, that's a resurrection, the hope that we have in the new life that we have in Jesus. And so, uh, baptism is just a crucial, crucial part of our faith as we move forward. And like I said, we want to baptize as many individuals as are willing here at Crossroads. And so, if you want to get baptized, if you've never considered getting baptized, but you've put your faith in Jesus, or you want to have more conversation about what that looks like, you can simply text the word next uh, to the number on the screen. And we have someone, uh, Doug Schmidt, who oversees all of our baptisms. And so he'll help explain what baptism is. He'll help you walk through that. And uh, if that's where you're at today, we would love for you to take that opportunity right now uh, to do that. All right. Well, with that said, I want to welcome uh, all of those joining online at Crossroads Live, YouTube, Facebook, as well at Fort Lupton. And here at Thornton, if we haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Matt Manning, and I am the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And it's my privilege to be able to open God's word with you. And so if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 7. That's where we're going to be today. We are continuing a series that we started last week. So we're week two of a series that we're calling, uh, I Can't Believe in a God Who. And we're going through all of the objections, the issues, the struggles that people have when it comes to putting their faith in Jesus. Now, I realize, and what we discovered last week, is that when we gather in a group this size online here at Thornton at Fort Lupton, that there are several different types or categories of people uh, in the space right now, right? And maybe you're one of the people here who you would say, you know what, if I'm being honest, I don't actually yet believe. I'm not yet convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. That is, that he's the son of God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and then three days later rose again. That maybe you would say, I'm not quite convinced of that yet. In fact, when it comes to the Bible and I read about the God of the Bible, there's some things in there that I really like and, and I'm open to it and I want to explore more. But if I was also being honest, that there's some things in the scripture that I'm not quite sure about. In fact, when I read them, they, they kind of make me queasy and I don't understand. And it's led me to say that I can't believe in a God and you have your list. For others of you, you're here and you maybe would go, man, I'm a believer. Like I believe in Jesus. And yet there's some things that I don't understand. And because I don't understand them, they've affected me deeply when it comes to my walk with Jesus. And I just want you to know that if you're in either of those two categories here today, that you are in the right place because this series is for you. What we've done is we've taken the most common phrases that we've heard when it comes to this idea. When people say, I can't believe in a God who, we've taken the common phrases, the common issues, the common objections that intelligent people have, and we said, we're going to sit down and we're going to try to address them the best that we can. So when we hear someone say, I can't believe in a God who, what typically follows is, is this list, that I can't believe in a God who allows suffering in this world. If that's you, last week we addressed that question on Easter. You can go back, check it out in our archives, online, on our app, wherever that may be. 
Maybe you're here today and you say, I can't believe in a God who, who doesn't answer my prayers. If that's you today, that's the one that we're going to take on. Maybe you're here and you would say, I can't, I can't believe in a God who, you know, if I was honest, I don't know that I actually need. That's totally legitimate. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I can't believe in a God whose followers and even its leaders at times are hypocrites. I get it. Maybe you're here today and you say, I can't believe in a God who, who says there's only one way to heaven. That these are just some of the objections that intelligent people have that we're going to take on over the next couple of weeks. And like I said, today we're taking on and addressing the issue that I can't believe in a God who doesn't answer my prayers. Now, when it comes to this topic, this one's rough, isn't it? Not just for those who are unconvinced, who aren't believers, but also for those of us who are believers. In fact, every single one of us have heard the old cliche that prayer changes things. And we hear that and we go, yeah, but what when it doesn't? But what about when it, when it just flat doesn't work? Like, like what then? Like maybe in your life, you've, you've earnestly prayed to God and you've got down on your knees and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed as earnestly as you could and it was like God wasn't even listening. Like you prayed and it was like God didn't hear. And in those moments as we're down on our knees and we're praying and all we hear is silence, it's like, God, are you even there? Do you even exist? And if you're a believer, what makes it even more difficult is that you probably know verses like Mark chapter 11, where Jesus says something like this, that therefore I tell you, that whatever you ask in prayer, believe it and you have received it and it will be yours. And we read promises like that and we pray and the answers don't come and we're left asking like, what's the problem? God, I'm asking, I'm believing that I'm receiving and it ain't happening. Like, where are you in this? And we don't see it. And so we go, I've, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and, and my prayers go up. But it just seems like, like God's not there. And if we were being honest in those moments, it leaves us a bit discouraged and maybe at worst it leaves us feeling ignored. It leads us to the point where maybe we just walk away and we only pray when we're most desperate or we go, I just can't believe in a God who doesn't answer my prayers. And listen, I want you to know that I get it. And today, as we walk through this together, I want you to be sure that I don't have the final answer when it comes to this. That I hope that someday in my experience and in my prayer life, having gone deep with God, that I would understand this more than I do. Because very few things have caused me to search my soul and to search the scriptures more than when I lift up a prayer that I believe is good, honoring to God within his will, and it's met with silence where he does not, or at least has not, seen fit to answer it in ways that I think he should. Like in my own life right now, I'm, I'm dealing with, with this, that I'm praying for someone, and I have been in this church for the last two years. I've been diligently praying for them. At times, it has led me to tears. I've pleaded to God. I've said, God, if, if, you, if you just come through in this moment, like, I will give you the glory. Like, you've given me the platform. I'll tell the story. Like, just show up in this moment. And over the last two years, it's been met with deafening silence. And even as a pastor, it's confusing. It's hard. It's discouraging. And so as today, as we dive into this topic, I don't want to look at this problem as just some theoretical problem, but we're going to look at it at a personal level and even at times a gut-wrenching level. 
So like I said, if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to be. And the reason that we're going to be there, it's because these verses has helped me more than any other verses in the scripture when it comes to this issue in my own life. That in Matthew chapter 7, we are in what is called famously the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest, fullest sermon that we have of Jesus in all of the Gospels. It starts in Matthew chapter 5, and it goes to Matthew chapter 7. And in the midst of the sermon, Jesus takes on the issue of prayer two times. The first time, it seems like it's in response to maybe the disciples. Now, the disciples, remember, are these 12 guys who are following Jesus. They're in their late teens, their early 20s. And these were guys who had been taught how to pray. Like these boys knew how to pray. Every little Jewish boy and every little Jewish girl were taught how to pray. Specifically, they were taught two types of prayer. The first one was the Shema. And the Shema went like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Give the Lord everything that you have. Praise the Lord with all of your mind, your strength, and your hearts. That was the Shema. The second one is called the Amidah, and the Amidah was said three times a day, and it had 18 specific blessings that went with it, that these guys knew how to pray. But as they're walking around with Jesus, they're watching Jesus, and when Jesus prayed, something odd happened, because things actually happened. Like, like demons were cast out of people, and people were healed, and all of a sudden there was freedom everywhere in people's lives. And when Jesus talked to the Father, when he talked, it was like they actually had this connection, like they were speaking to one another. And I just kind of imagine, like, the disciples are sitting around the fire at night, and they're watching Jesus pray, and they're like, I don't think we're doing it right. Like, I don't, I don't, think, we, I don't think we got it. Like, Jesus, would, would you teach us what it looks like to pray like you pray. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, look, if you want to pray the way that I pray, here's what you do. And in starting in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus explains the way that we're to pray. The second time that this shows up, the prayer shows up in the Sermon on the Mount, I think is in response to the very issue that we're dealing with some 2,000 years later. Like, Jesus, I'm praying, I'm praying, and I'm praying, and God's not answering, what's going on? What do I do? And in response to that kind of question, Jesus answers this way in chapter 7, starting in verse 7. He says this, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. And we read this, and we pause, and we go, hold on, wait. I thought this was going to be helpful. This sounds like the verse in Mark that we read earlier. Like, Jesus, I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking, and nobody's home. What's the deal? And isn't this the case for every single one of us? The reality is, is whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, that you get to the point where you start to pray. And when we start praying, we are excited in our prayers that we believe that God is going to do something. And yet, as time moves on, that excitement moves to exhaustion. As we grow weary of the seeking, as our hands become bruised from the knocking, as we begin to realize that the voice that we're hearing is just the echo of the desperate cry of our own soul. And the longer that our prayers linger in that quiet place, struggle and doubt and confusion move in and we're tempted to succumb to it all of it and say, is it even worth it? And yet what makes this teaching different than all the other teachings when it comes to prayer is that Jesus adds this illustration to us or for us that brings so much clarity in the way that we understand prayer. 
In verse 9, he says, Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That Jesus gives us this picture of prayer, and in doing so, he actually draws us in as, as parents. And he looks at us and he goes, okay, dads, let's get real for a moment. If your daughter comes up to you legitimately hungry and says, dad, can I have some food? Who among you is going to give them stones? To which we go, Jesus, none of us. Like, like we're going to take care of princess, right? Like, we're going to give her food. And Jesus goes, good, okay. Now, if your son comes up and he asks you for a fish, how many of you are going to give him a deadly viper? To which you go, uh, no. Like, we're not going to do that. And Jesus goes, okay, well, let's turn it around. If your son was to ask you for a deadly viper, how many of you would give it to him? Which as dads, we go, no, we, we wouldn't. Like as dads, we want to give our kids good things. We want to give them things that will help them grow and make them strong and, and, and move them along in life to be successful. That, that as dads, we only want to give good things. And Jesus goes, that's the point. And in the illustration, he draws us in to this prevailing image in the Bible of how God sees humanity as his children and how he treats his children. And anybody who's a parent who has been around little kids understands the point that we don't give our children, particularly when they're young, everything that they ask for because they don't know all that's good for them. In my house, um, I am in charge of the menu every week, the grocery shopping, and most days I'm in charge of making dinner. And so every week when I sit down to start to put together the menu, I'll ask my kids, like, what do they want for, for dinner this week? Like, if they could choose something for dinner, what would it be? And so I'll ask my eight-year-old daughter, Mercy, and every week she gives me the exact same answer, doesn't hesitate. She looks at me and she says, steak. Yeah, pity the fool that marries her, right? Like, it's my evil plan to keep her in my house as long as I can. Now, I'll ask my 13-year-old, my oldest Theo, what he wants, and he'll give me something sensible for dinner or what he wants. And then I'll ask my 10-year-old Cademan, who's the party of the house, what he wants, and he'll answer something like this almost every week. Dad, I think that we should have brownies for dinner. And I go, son, we, we can't just have brownies. Undeterred, he goes, okay, how about donuts? And I go, son, we can't do donuts either. And he goes, well, dad, to be fair, sometimes we have donuts for breakfast, right? Like little rug eater, right? Like in this space. Now, to, in this, when I was in high school, I had a buddy and uh, she came up with this idea of a restaurant called Dessert First, where dessert wasn't like the last course of the meal, but was the first like genius I know. Like Cademan is 100% invested in this already, all right? So, so back, to my, back to my house. That every week, Cademan gets something he didn't ask for as much as he would have liked brownies for dinner. But deep down, he would have wanted that dinner that I served him more if he actually knew what was good for him. See, in light of the illustration that Jesus gives, in our experience as parents, when Jesus says, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened, does he actually mean that God will give us everything we ask for just the way that we ask for it? Well, implicit in the text is no. And what Jesus follows up with is this, is that your heavenly father 
how much more will he give good things to those who ask him? That these words are so important. Your heavenly Father only gives good gifts. He only gives good things. He doesn't give serpents to children. See, when we read these verses in Scripture, ask and you shall receive, it doesn't mean that you'll get the very thing that you ask for when you ask for it the way that you asked for it. It doesn't say that and it doesn't mean that. That if we take this teaching as a whole from verse 7 and 8 and add 9 through 11 to it, what it's saying to us is that when we ask, when we seek, when we knock, when we come to our Heavenly Father as children desperately crying out to Him, that God hears us and He will answer us. And sometimes that answer is exactly what you asked for, exactly when you asked for it, the way that you asked for it, just the way that you desired it. And sometimes it means that God is gonna give you something better than what you asked for in his timing in the way that he seems best. And sometimes it means that God, like a wise father, will tell his child no. And that sounds a lot like silence to us, doesn't it? But he says no to us because what we're really asking for is a serpent. And God will not give serpents to children. He only gives us good things ever. And of course, when we're down on our knees praying, this tests our faith, doesn't it? Because if I truly thought that there was something better, that's what I would have asked for. That's what I would have, that's what I would have started with. But in those moments, we have to take a step back and realize that, that I'm not God. And I don't see the way that God sees. And the great gift when it comes to prayer is not that I receive everything that I ask for. The great gift that comes with prayer is that I get to ask of anything at all because of my relationship with God. And I know that for some of you, maybe for most of us, that that sounds like a, a nice, clean, and trite answer. And that you're thinking the same thing that rolls through my head. That when we ask something that is good, that is good, like, like the healing of a family member, we struggle to understand why that would be bad for us, why God would say no to us, why it's like eating brownies for dinner every night. And I don't presume that this is easy. In fact, on this side of heaven, it's tough. But what we must hold on to in those moments, what I hold on to in those moments, is that God has only brought good, that he's only brought good into my life. And so whatever he has plans, I will trust that that is best. And the reason that I hold on to it and I grip that in such a way is not just because of blind faith, but because of what Jesus actually teaches here, he actually lives out in his life. I mean, if you know the story of Jesus, flash forward to the very end of his life, right before he's tortured and humiliated and ultimately killed on the cross. Go to that intimate moment right before all of that happens, where we see him go off by himself to pray to the glory of God, and we see him struggle with the Father all night long, with the Father's will of what's going in his life. And it's this picture that we get of Jesus, 100% God, coming into this world to die for sins, the sins of the world. 
up against Jesus, 100% man who says, I don't want to die. And Jesus all night in the intimate moment in the garden of Gethsemane is sitting there and he's praying and he's praying and he's praying and he's struggling with God to the point where blood starts dripping from his face like sweat. And he's there all night long. Why? Because he knows what is the good plan of the father and he doesn't like it. He doesn't want to die. And he comes before the father and he says, look, God, I, I don't want to be betrayed by my friends. I don't wanna be mocked and humiliated. I don't wanna go through the lashings of the Roman torture. I don't wanna be hung on a cross and die an awful death. And he fights God all night long till he can get to the point of surrender and say those precious words. Not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Father, I'll hold on to and believe that you have only good things. And whatever you have plans, I will believe that it's best. Now seriously, if you and I didn't know the end of the story, and we were in that moment with Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane, and we were watching our friend, and we were praying for our friends, we would be sitting in that moment, and we would be saying, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. How is it that the worst possible thing ever could happen to the best possible person ever? Like, God, how is this good? How is this in your plan? How is this, how's this going to work out? And in the silence of that night before the crucifixion, there must have been doubt and struggle and anger and rage. God, where are you in this? And yet... It's the cross that ultimately serves as the foundation for us to be able to trust whatever God does is good, even when it doesn't make sense. Like when evil people are adopted into the family of God. I mean, did you see where Jesus slipped that into this teaching? Verse 11, he said, for those of you who are evil, you know how to good give gifts. How much more so is your Father who is in heaven going to give those good gifts to those who ask him? Like, how can it be evil? How can it be that evil people are adopted by an all-holy God? How can it be that we presume to be children, that we could presume to ask, that we could presume to seek, that we could presume to knock on the door and expect it to be opened? It's because Jesus gave his life as a ransom that saved us from wrath, that saved us from sin and put us in position to be children of his where we can expect only good things. That right before the cross, Jesus is in what we call the Last Supper with his disciples. And during that time, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, this is my blood of the covenant. This is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In the testimony that Chris gave at his baptism, he asked the question, what's sin? Like, what is sin? That sin at its very basic level is any transgression against God. It's when we try to establish a sense of self, a sense of identity outside of our relationship with God. 
by making something else the center of our success, of our happiness, of our purpose, than that relationship with God. That every single one of us has sinned in that way. Whether it be us putting in the center fame, maybe for you it's money, other people, sex, your sexuality. Whatever it is that you're putting at the center, trying to to find your identity in that and your satisfaction in that rather than God, that's sin. And because of Jesus' blood, our sins, those sins, are forgiven. And we're given a new identity. And that identity is children of God, a child of the Creator. See, the death of Jesus is the foundation for all of the promises of God and all the answers for prayer that we ever get. It's why we pray in Jesus' name at the end of every prayer. It's all dependent upon him. That Jesus died on the cross so that you could have life. If you've never trusted Jesus as your savior, if you've never walked down this road, if you've never known what it's like, to have a Father in heaven who truly loves you and only wants good things for you, then I would invite you to text Jesus to the number on the screen. Whether that's questions that you have or God's whispering in your heart right now, to take that step of faith, to text that number and to find out about this God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Before we celebrate and remember communion and the death of Christ together, would you just pray with me? Father, we come to you, Lord, grateful for the cross. Lord, that through your son's death, you paved the way for life and have called us your children. And so, Lord, we celebrate in the life that you've given. We celebrate that that you call us children. We celebrate that we can come to you like little kids asking for the things in our life that you actually wanna hear us. And Lord, sometimes like, like a father, you give us what we're asking for and we bring you praise. And Lord, in other times you give us something much more better and, and in those moments, Lord, we're, we're filled. And sometimes, Lord, you, you say no. And Lord, sadly, those times are crushing to us. And so, Lord, I would ask that you would teach us, Lord, to trust in you fully, to know that you only give good things even when we don't understand, even when the best person ever dies the worst possible death, that we would look and have confidence to trust in you because of what your son accomplished on the cross for us. For those, Lord, who are hearing their whisper now, that whisper, Lord, I pray that they would lean into it like Chris leaned into that. Lord, to step in as an act of faith, to have some of the questions answered and to gain clarity and to see that you are a good, good Father. Lord, we thank you. We ask that you move in us in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we go to communion and Remember Jesus' death. It was on that night before his crucifixion where he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup 
And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And so today we remember the sacrifice of our Savior on the cross. And we drink. As we move into time of singing, if you at any moment need prayer, we do think prayer changes things, not as a cliche, but as children going to their heavenly father. So if you need prayer online, just click the button. Fort Lupton here at Thornton, you can just make your way to the back over here. At both locations, we have people ready to pray. Would you go ahead and stand as we sing together?